0: Homily for the 28th Sunday in Ordinary Time, Sunday, October 14th, 2018, St. Mary's Church, Grand Forks. Today, the parishes and the Diocese of Fargo are asked to conduct a special second collection to assist the victims of Hurricane Florence, which devastated parts of the coastal Carolinas last month. We have seen another hurricane since that time, impacting the Gulf Coast of Florida and other parts of the Southeast, Hurricane Michael, just a couple of days ago. And so we ask you to please support this collection generously. Thank you. Just how rich was the rich young man? I pose that question because we may already have a picture of a young billionaire in our minds. Maybe it's Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, or a professional athlete. Perhaps we're thinking of a Rockefeller or Vanderbilt, the heir to his family's long-amassed fortune. We may even think of the person as foolish, ready to burn through piles of cash to amuse himself or his entourage of friends. But the rich young man does not have to be wealthy to fall prey to the obstacles he faces. In a reflection on this passage, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI speculated that the man may have only owned relatively little rather than much, and still had the same problems, because of the disposition of his heart. Were that the case, how much more dismal would his plight be? Whether he would have seemed rich to us here and now is immaterial, if that which he called his own had consumed his attention. The bottom line is that he didn't so much possess what he owned. Those things possessed him. And despite the incessant message of our world, he would never find the happiness for which he was made in pursuing such a lifestyle. Neither should we conclude that the rich young man lived like a complete heathen. In the first place, let's give him credit for asking Jesus the question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is evidence here of a sincere conscience. Something about this question cuts to the heart of what matters most in our lives. Where am I headed, and how do I get there? At times I wonder how many people, especially those younger than me, are even bothering to ask that question. How many of them are so used to the attachments that fill their lives and allow these things to define them? It reminds me of a reflecting pool, which covers many square yards, but only goes a few inches deep. It looks pretty, but how much water does it really contain? Jesus begins with a classic question, hearkening back to the man's religious heritage. Are you keeping the commandments? Without being arrogant, the rich young man declares that he's avoiding the whoppers. Keeping the Lord's Day? Check. Haven't stolen anything? Check. Living chastely and saving yourself for marriage? Check. That may be why it's easy for many of us to relate to him. He doesn't have to start over from rock bottom. But despite all of the check marks he has in the plus column, something is still amiss. So why doesn't Jesus stop right there and shower the young man with attaboys, like we presume many others had done in his past? The answer goes back to something that St. Paul described very well. A few Sundays ago, I spoke about our understanding of law as Christians. We don't meticulously follow every verse of every chapter from, say, the book of Leviticus, as our Jewish ancestors and faith may have done. We take the Ten Commandments seriously, but as a guide, and not necessarily a finish line. The commandments apply, first of all, to the lawbreakers to confront them in their sin and give them an opportunity for repentance. As for those who abide by them, the commandments are not so much goals, but boundaries, keeping us in the game so that we can participate in lives of holiness and not straying out of bounds. Notice the firmness and the compassion, both present in the attitude of Jesus, looking at him with love. Jesus wished for this young man to conceive of the potential his life holds. The Lord's challenge was not a condemnation as to chastise him as some sort of villain. He challenged the young man to cut these strings, or else he would never appreciate how truly rich his life can become. Do we believe, as did the author of today's first reading, that the gift of wisdom makes silver and gold seem like sand. There is great wealth that comes from the contentment of a virtuous life, loving what is good and hating what is evil. The young man had to learn that if he were to grow in Christ, divine love would tackle his fear head on and burn it away. There is no such purification without pain. There is no way to prune a shrub without the wounding of live branches. The rich young man's sadness in walking away is just as sad for us. He has bought the lie that what he gives up will be lost and gone forever. Sell everything to follow Jesus? Unthinkable. The Christian steward, on the other hand, is able to trust that God gives abundantly to those who give of themselves, because all that we have ultimately belongs to God and not to us. With this viewpoint, even the heroic is within reach. Let's not forget that many of the Lord's disciples, having seen what just transpired, were shaken to the core. It was as if their understanding of the world was turned upside down. So often in the scriptures, and in other stories within their culture, worldly goods were how God manifested his judgment. The wealthy had what they had because God, who sees what is hidden in our hearts, blessed their piety with immediate rewards. The destitute, on the other hand, were suffering punishment for turning away from God. Without a clear concept of the afterlife, so the logic goes, God would have to settle the score in this life. This explains the attitude of Job's friends in that book in the Old Testament, They who give him such a hard time after the tragedies that befell him. Just admit to whatever you did wrong, they tell Job, and God will take care of you. But we know that this outlook is far too simplistic. Bad things indeed happen to good people. We cannot definitively say that the poor had it coming on account of their wickedness. On the contrary, many of the poor suffer unjustly. Our responsibility as their brothers and sisters is not to castigate or segregate them, but to exercise what is called a preferential option for the poor, realizing that we are actually doing for Christ himself what we do for them. Jesus' disciples were not prepared to acknowledge that material wealth could be unhelpful baggage, dragging them down. Their opinion reminds me of Tevye, the lead character in the musical Fiddler on the Roof, when he exclaims, O God, if money be the root of all evil, then please strike me down so that I may never recover. We should recall the exact quote from St. Paul's letter to Timothy. The love of money is the root of all evil. Again, where are our hearts? Do we believe that we will receive a hundredfold what we give? In speaking of our attachment to this world's goods, Jesus states that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. A reference point from the time of Christ sheds light on this metaphor. Jerusalem was a walled city, like many were in ancient times, in order to provide protection from warring armies. Several main gates were built into the walls, as well as some minor, smaller gates. One such gate was called the Needle's Eye. Mostly used for human pedestrians, camels could also pass through it, as long as they carried nothing on their backs and crawled through on their knees. A laden camel, striding tall, could not pass through the Needle's Eye. It first had to abandon its load and humble itself, in order to fit through the tight opening. With this simple image, Jesus masterfully illustrated his point. What in our lives is keeping us from fitting as we try to go through that gate and be united with God in heaven? Amen.